I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Daniel Wood. Daniel is the Associate Vice President of Consulting at Bishop Fox, where he leads all service lines, develops strategic initiatives, and has established the Applied Research and Development Program. Daniel has over 15 years of experience in cybersecurity and is a subject matter expert in red teaming, insider threat, and counterintelligence. Daniel was previously the Manager of Security Engineering and Technology at Bridgewater Associates, where he shaped the strategic direction of technology for the firm and oversaw technical security assessments of Bridgewater's international office expansion. Daniel has also served in roles supporting the U.S. government in security architecture, engineering, and offensive operations as security engineer and red team leader. He supported the U.S. Special Operations Command on red teaming and digital warfare operations and the U.S. Army on the wargaming cyber effects on soldiers' decision-making projects. In this episode, we discuss adapting to COVID-19, focusing on red teaming, cloud security architecture, responsible vulnerability disclosure, ICS security, compliance versus security, his work in the U.S. military and cybersecurity, diversity in information security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Daniel, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Doug. Whereabouts are you located? I'm currently located in Texas. And how are you handling the pandemic and COVID down in Texas? <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely uh, interesting seeing people being more uh, more open with uh, not wearing masks and having very strong opinions on the, the whole COVID situation. So, and how has that impacted your ability to work with your customers and your team? Yeah, I would say we weren't too affected by COVID um, that much. Um, luckily for us. You know, when we have a client that wants us to come on site, we're able to do things like, you know, having drop boxes, um, you know, networked appliances that we can ship to the, the client to, to help with the uh, facilitation of the network assessments. But most of most of our ability has not been impacted by, um, you know, the, the work that we do. So. And if you can tell the listeners a little bit about your journey and how you got started in cybersecurity. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. I started um, probably in 1998 uh, or so. Um, I started off as an analyst. I did a lot of government-related work, um, information assurance, doing certification and accreditation work for uh, multiple agencies. And uh, kind of, you know, that was all, I guess, spurned by the fact that I had an innate uh, interest in cybersecurity, you know, building my first computer when I was probably 11, tinkering, you know, figuring out how to bypass proxies in in high school uh, to to go to websites um, that were blocked at the library, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I had a very similar background and upbringing and, you know, much of the 90s was, you know, certainly experimental and there was folks like Kevin Mitnick and, you know, everything that I followed on 2600 and early, you know, we even call call it a podcast, but off the hook, 
listening to these stories, I realized, you know, I probably don't want to go to jail. That's that's not going to be a lot of fun. So I try to focus more just on the general IT side of the house. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with you on that. I had one very serious large scare uh, concerning that type of topic, and I turned my life around. So how did you get into focusing specifically on, you know, what is what we call now, you'll certainly pen testing, offensive security, uh, red teaming, and everything else that goes with that. And, and often it's confusing when folks say, hey, this is the type of test that I want. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people, they constrain their ideas of security to, uh, to kind of the, the book definition of cybersecurity. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned red teaming. Red teaming is a huge passion of mine. Um, it's about knowing, you know, knowing your adversary and, and becoming the adversary in order to, to, you know, improve the security of your target, which is going to be, you know, the organization that you're at or the, the client that you have. And so usually real adversaries don't just do one type of technique or focus strictly on, you know, perimeter scanning or hacking through firewalls. They try everything they can, such as social engineering. And when somebody says, hey, I want a pen test, you know, that can mean a lot of things to different people. And, you know, I think at times kind of faulted ourselves in the industry for not defining it clearly enough between uh, the pen test and audit and assessment. Yeah, when, when someone asks they need a pen test, I ask them, you know, what are their motivations for the pen test, first and foremost? Is it a compliance exercise? You know, that will help me understand what perspective they're coming from if it's just check the box. That tells me a lot about the uh, the client and their motivations. Um, but if it's, you know, we really want to understand, um, you know, say we, we were just talking about COVID earlier um, with uh, remote work, um, if a lot of organizations are moving towards almost a zero trust architecture with their, you know, with the way they do their IT, then knowing like what are their use cases that they're going after in, in terms of understanding their security posture. Um, that's kind of where I would start. And then we really dive into the the goals and objectives of, okay, if you're, in, if you're worried about your zero trust architecture, you know, what, what concerns you about your identity and access management? Um, you know, and we really drill into it to understand the, the scope um, a lot better. Have you also seen more and more organizations shift to newer technologies, you know, whether it be cloud, IoT, or whatever it is, microservices, where they're moving more of their infrastructure into these environments? And how are you addressing those from a risk posture? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we're we're seeing that almost, uh, you know, quarter by quarter, year by year, in terms of where the industry is going, um, based off of technology that's being adopted, as well as, you know, organizations that, you know, I would say five years ago, um, organizations were very uh, laggard in terms of adopting new technology. But within the last year to two years, it seems like there's been a huge uh, uptick in trying to get to the cloud and trying to, you know, whether it's going to serverless architecture or, or doing something else, it requires definitely a targeted approach that is much more specific to the technology, you know, whether you're assessing uh, Microsoft Azure environments, they're very different than, say, a, an Amazon AWS environment, but there are similar concepts. And with that shift, you know, as a as a company, we also need to identify the trends and, and try to be a, in front of those trends so we can, one, train our people up within those new technologies and services and also put together methodologies that are able to provide uh, real value to our clients that are looking to move in that direction. Are there are there things that maybe people 
you know, I, and I've, I've kind of seen this happen a little bit where, where, you know, maybe folks think, oh, geez, it's in the cloud. Somebody else is going to secure it, that some of these vulnerabilities may not exist or necessarily apply to their environment because somebody else is managing it. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the thing that we try to help our, our clients understand is if you adopt, uh, say, AWS, for example, there is a certain level of security control that they provide with their platform, you know, the infrastructure as a service type of platform, but anything you put into an EC2 instance, as well as the security groups around that, um, that is on you to, to control. And a lot of people, they think it's kind of out of their hands, they just install their applications or, or put in their services and then they're done, but they, they don't really understand, you know, security groups are basically the, the next gen firewall almost for the cloud um, and what that it would entail. So um, we find often there are lots of issues when it comes to nesting permissions to things because people truly don't understand the services that they're, they're rolling out with. Yeah, you know, some of the, certainly some of the things I've seen kind of certainly you know, become more prevalent too is API abuse, um, and you know whether it be you know, stale keys, misuse or abuse of keys, um, but it's almost like something that again, where maybe a, a development team might not think about that, um, and then you come to find out, hey, look, this is a this kind of a exposure area um, that people really don't address. Have you have you seen more customers either start focusing on those areas um, or even be yeah, definitely. API abuse is a, a huge area of concern. Um, you know, we, we are working with a couple, I would say, technology giants uh, in the industry um, around partner programs to very specifically look at the security of their APIs and what the, the third party providers are and how they're leveraging them. And so it's definitely of concern. Um, the, the, the thing that people don't really understand, um, which, you know, I, I don't want to say this in like... Uh, I guess an all-encompassing statement. Oh, a big but, blanket statement, sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so let, me, let me just caveat that. But um, there are um, there are times when people forget about the APIs in the backend service um, that provides the data and the, and the data model that goes behind it, and so they may focus all their security and their controls on, say, the web UI and the authentication gateway for that particular thing, and they're not really API. Uh, first focused, um, which usually tends to leave the things that you had mentioned out, um, as well as the, the security holes or unauthenticated API access. So it's a, it's definitely a huge concern. You know, so when, when you're looking at things, um, when you, when you offer, again, sure could make blanket statements, but what are, what are maybe some of the common things that you, that you might see and then make remediation rec recommendations around in that, that particular area? Yeah, I would, I would say um, a lot of the times there's um, the the user authentication is is broken. Um, when a, a user tries to act like a, a legitimate user tries to access the API, um, you know, there are things like rate limiting that aren't put in place um, or ensuring that um, when you're trying to attack, say, a web UI and you're doing like brute force against that, um, there are protections put in place against it, but on the API, there may not be protections put in place for that. Um, additionally, there are um, lots of times there are APIs that expose too much data and they don't have the right filtering in place. Um, so when a user authenticates to the API, if there is even authentication at times, um, it could be returning all the results back, but filtering and only showing um, 
what somebody is asking for. And so understanding the data scope and, and the, the model behind that is, is really important. And I guess last, without going down a, a rabbit hole on this, is um, there are injection attacks that can affect APIs. A lot of people think, oh, you know, that's usually just with a, a web app that, you know, you have an input box, you're, you're trying to do a SQL injection or, or whatever, but you can actually inject malicious data uh, because an API still has to interpret your commands and your data and your requests. Um, so that's something else that needs to be taken into account in terms of ensuring that there is no avenue for injection. Gotcha. You know, in, in kind of looking at some of the other maybe kind of areas of concern that, that I've seen more, more common too, certainly things around maybe uh, IoT, OT, and, and these other kind of maybe either legacy devices or newer devices that might not fall within the, the typical parameter of, uh, you know, hardware and OS kind of setup of a computer. How have you seen that changing in environments? And are those the types of things that people should be testing as they're connected? Yeah, absolutely. I would say they need to be testing them even before they're connected to a, a production environment, maybe in a, a test lab or um, kind of in a, in a mock environment. Um, you know, everything pretty much can connect to the internet these days. You know, my TV connects to the internet. I've When I went to buy my TV, I saw um, at the store a refrigerator and a washing machine that also connects to the network to send you, you know, notifications. Um, you know, there's fridges with uh, LCD panels now that can, you can literally surf the internet with your refrigerator. And so um, there are things uh, I would say that we definitely need to focus on, especially with IoT, um, you know, creating almost like device or standards around uh, device benchmarks to ensure that, you know, there is a model of security that is being applied as kind of like a, a standard baseline for, you know, commercial products and also for business products as well. Um, you know, I, I've seen organizations that will employ IoT related devices, um, but not secure them. And, you know, as a, a person that used to be operational in the past, some of the easiest ways to get in into the network is to compromise that IoT device, uh, either plugging directly into it if you can, um, or connecting to it and then using that to, to backport into the network. Yeah, I think people tend to underappreciate the amount of network services that that run on these devices. They have many web servers, sometimes SSH, SSH or FTP servers. They can have quite a bit. Are, are there common maybe services, network services that you see that these things have that are, you know, again, maybe 80-20 rule, but have more of a, a larger risk surface area? Yeah, I see a lot of services such as FTP that may be open, uh, SSH um, that has default credentials, um, you know, or very weak and guessable uh, credentials that you can access. Um, a lot of IoT devices, they may have a, a firmware update uh, process that is not secure. So you can man in the middle and, and deploy your own malicious firmware to it to, to basically shell the, the hardware and then take it over and, and go from there. Um, and then also, you know, since we're talking about devices and, and hardware, um, a lack of you know, physical security protections as well. A lot of the the stuff when you're getting into IoT and hardware related security and into the the lower level security, um, you know, you can plug into the the JTAG port. You can analyze. Um, you know, you can tap the the chips with. Uh, 
uh, I'm forgetting the name of the tool off the top of my head, but you can affect the voltage during the boot up of a device that will allow you to bypass um, authentication and gain shell at times. And so there's multiple things that people need to take in consideration, but you know, the, the sky isn't falling and everyone doesn't fall within, you know, the, I would say a super critical risk uh, um, threshold. I think every organization needs to understand what their risk threshold is and what the what they're trying to protect against and put the the correct controls in place and the the right processes and stuff, depending on what they're worried about. So um, take that with a, a grain of salt. I would say. Yeah, certainly it has to it has to kind of apply to your business needs. And the, and the one thing we've certainly seen over the past few years is maybe I would say and I'm. <clears throat> maybe being too nice about it, but say, you know, maybe sensationalized vulnerabilities where they have their own websites and press releases and they become these things that might necessarily be as critical to as many organizations, but there are other things that, that are out there. So when it comes to, you know, that's kind of, and it's, it's been a, a challenging area for, for, I'd say that the industry for, for many years is, you know, responsible vulnerability disclosure. How do you, how do you get into things that are, you know, not, not hyperbolic, but also not making people angry and really kind of balancing this whole thing out. And also maybe giving the, the right type of runway for security researchers so they don't get penalized or possibly prosecuted. Yeah, um, this is actually a subject that's kind of near and dear to my heart, um, kind of hearkening back to the very opening statements around turning my life around, but also, um, you know, an experience, um, you know, my, my personal opinion is, you know, every chance should be made to get a, a vendor, um, you know, whether it's a software or a hardware vendor, um, to understand the vulnerability that may be in play before you disclose it. But I also th- firmly believe that there is a responsibility if the impact of said vulnerability would be enough to have a blast radius that would affect many people and be severe enough. Um, that, you know, there's privacy concerns, whether it's, you know, PII, PHI, or uh, physical safety concerns, that the wider public should should be aware of it if a company is sitting on it and not, not willing to address it. And so I think, you know, from an organizational standpoint here at Bishop Fox, we kind of follow the, the disclosure policy that I believe Google had set out in terms of their program. And, uh, you know, we work with our clients or we work with um, these vendors to understand the vulnerabilities um, that are Im- impacting our, you know, their products when we do the research. And if that research impacts our clients, we will let our clients know like, um, hey, there, there is this vulnerability that is impacting you that we discovered and, you know, whether it's X, Y, or Z uh, uh, IoT device or software, and we're working with the vendor to, to help them understand, you know, how to patch it, mitigate it, and we'll let you know. So, um, I think it's kind of a shared responsibility model. And I think, you know, it's not, it's not just one-sided where you disclose the vulnerability um, to the public after, you know, you maybe have a, a vendor that's not non-responsive. But I think we need to go the step further and identify where that vulnerability could impact, say, your, your, your clients, for example, and help them understand, okay, if there is not going to be a patch or a mitigation, what could be a, a strategy to securely move to an alternative? So that, that's kind of uh, how we approach it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think you know, we've certainly seen you know, potentials for some of the laws changing now in front of the Supreme Court with Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. You know, it's it's what security research is going to look like. But I, I definitely think there's there's a two way street there too. Of, you know, we're all we're all parties have to find a common ground of responsible 
discourse to really find things. And again, not everything's going to be, you know, the sky is falling, but there could be things that could have, you know, impact. And particularly when you look at things within the healthcare sector or things like that, that are, are more connected online, um, you know, are, are there again, more, maybe, you know, when it comes to some of that, you know, are there particular industries that you see that become more vulnerable to things that are coming out? You know, they have either more embedded devices, um, there's just different things, you know, whether it be SCADA, healthcare, things like that, where kind of gets you concerned because they, they can have a life or death impact. Yeah, that's exactly right. SCADA, healthcare, uh, industrial control systems, um, gas, gas and oil, um, a lot of the kind of uh, heavy industry and in, um, kind of that vertical in, in terms of organizations that deal with a lot of sensors, um, they are uh, very... I, I would say vulnerable um, based off of the, the age of the devices and the, the signal um, processors that they have in place, as well as their control units, whether it's, you know, the, the PLC controllers or, or whatever it might be. And so we, we definitely see that as a trend, but we're also seen in technology as, you know, organizations are, are trying to, you know, before COVID, of course, but we're trying to be, you know, open office, have, you know, all the gadgets in, attract the top tech talent. We've been seeing things like IoT devices and game systems that are connected to the network that don't have protections put in place or that are, are vulnerable to attack. So um, I would say definitely healthcare and, and, and the uh, the heavy industries, but also in tech. Yeah. You know, with, with things like industrial control systems, you know, I, I've certainly done my, my fair share of network assessments and pen tests with those, those environments. And sometimes you find things where you say, Hey, look, it's, you, know, you, you just have an end of life windows box or something like this. And they're like, yeah, we haven't turned it off in five years. It's running stable. We can't take it down to, to remove, you know, it's 24 seven. So with some of those types of devices, how do you usually kind of coach or kind of help customers still kind of maintain those systems, even though they can't take them out because the reality is they might not be able to. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a hard problem, um, you know, for, for the client, but also for, you know, the person advising, because you have to understand all the system inputs and outputs. What is that system connected to um, when you're coming up with a strategy? Maybe you can segregate that system or set of systems on a separate network that has a different type of network control around it. Um, to one, protect it, but also to protect the rest of the uh, assets that are on your network from if in case that does get compromised, it doesn't uh, affect the rest of your network. Um, there's also, you know, working with them to understand what could be their plan for upgrading or transitioning. And it may be a long-term plan, you know, three years, five years, even 10 years out, but getting them to at least start that process of understanding, okay, this thing is vulnerable. It's critical to our operation. And if it's in an ICS type of environment, it could be critical to the health and safety of those around it. Um, and so understanding, you know, what are the alternatives, but then also there's that regulatory and compliance angle when you're talking about things that are in the ICS, whether it's NERC SIP in terms of uh, critical information protection requirements, um, so there's, there's, there's that to balance as well. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's always a challenge. I don't, I don't think there's, there's a silver bullet, you know, that's good old network segmentation <laughs> layer, layer one through three still, uh, still has, has a play in, in those environments and you know, something, you know, we've even you know, helped people with that. Uh, someone say, Hey, well, put a jump box in, secure that, make it a single point of 
you know, in and out. Um, so you, you have to get kind of creative, but there's, there tends to be always a, a compensating way to, to get around that. Right. So, you know, you mentioned something too, and you know, we talk about compliance and, you know, th- those types of standards, you know, how, how do you view that kind of world? You know, there's always been a love hate relationship, let's say between the research hacker community, folks within maybe government regulatory compliance worlds. Um, and there's always that concern. They're going to issue some kind of compliance standard or law that either is maybe unreasonable, unfeasible, just doesn't work. So how, how, how do we, how do we overcome some of those challenges as part of a community to make sure we have a seat at the table and have things, I mean, not necessarily in our favor, but you know, work. So it's not so such a hurdle. Yeah, I think that's a great question, by the way. Um, to me, I think compliance in sec- like, is uh, widely misinterpreted as security. Compliance is not security. It is essentially adhering to regulatory frameworks and requirements that a organization may put out, whether it's you know PCI DSS or uh, NIST 853 or even NERCSIP, as I mentioned before. Those are uh, regulatory requirements and not necessarily what I would call security. While they, they do uh, impact and affect the security of a system or an organization, um, being able to check off that you are compliant with the confidential uh, requirements for like a level one system is not the same thing as saying that you have put security control measures in place that thwart X, Y, and Z types of attacks and uh, you're no longer uh, penetrable from the outside of the firewall type of of security. So um, I think that would be the first thing that I would say about it. But on the the other hand, I would say that I think it is necessary. I think that compliance is there for a reason to, to attest that, um, you know, an organization or an entity or a system or a set of systems falls within compliance to a framework that has been vetted by um, individuals that are in a position to say, these are the regulatory requirements to be quote unquote secure for this environment with this type of data. Um, and if you can certify that you meet that, and if you can go through an assessment that does state that you have met those requirements, that at least gives you a starting point to say that you have some level, some baseline level of security. I see it as a, a baseline level and not necessarily what you should be ultimately uh, achieving for, because as you know, any any good hacker would tell you, um, just because a, an organization is PCI compliant doesn't mean that they can't be hacked or can't be breached, and you can't get to cardholder data. It's you know, it's kind of the the nature of the beast, and then also, um, you know, I would say the hacker mentality is always seeking to bypass controls. The compliance mentality is, let me just put into place what this thing is saying and not thinking beyond, not thinking outside the box, just checking that box. Yeah. It's it, like you said, it's, it's almost like a, it's, it's uh, that kind of baseline standard, almost like a driver's license. You know, it's like, it gives you a, a good, uh, a good sense of where, where to be in some minimal standards, but it's not, not going to be a, a bulletproof vest. And, and that I think is, is an area of kind of false, <laughs> false sense of security. So, you know, I'm, I'm imagining too, then there's maybe different departments that you have to deal with that, you know, InfoSec is under one head, compliance is under another legal. Have you been in situations where you've had to get these different departments to talk to each other about these types of concerns in ways that they might not see from each other's eyes? Yeah, that's always a fun juggling game in terms of getting, um, you know, getting the the compliance um, folks and the, the 
the tech folks and like the security and operation folks together. Um, you know, when you're talking about compliance, um, there are going to be requirements that are from a legal standpoint that, you know, an organization needs to put in place or client requirements that they have for themselves in order to do business um, with their own clients. And so understanding what those requirements are and then being able to take the requirements that say the, the security operations team would have in terms of, well, we really need to see the logs. We really need to see real-time network flows. We need to see, you know, behavioral analytics, whatever it might be. Um, and then being doing that mapping exercise between, okay, these are what our regulatory, legal, and uh, customer requirements are for us from a security standpoint. This is what we can map towards. And then you're left with kind of the uh, the remnants or the miscellaneous, uh, you know, initiatives that people want to, to, to go through. And at that time, it's usually kind of a beg, borrow, and steal money from different departments or different units and kind of saying, okay, I'm going to prioritize this in terms of security operations. Um, but then it needs to have approval from compliance uh, to see if it actually meets the goal that the organization has. So there, there's a lot of politicking involved with having multiple um, uh, departmental uh, units when it comes to security and compliance. Yeah, I think it's the uh, it's the underrated art of of cybersecurity is uh, it's almost like an ambassador with many organizations <laughs> where you have to, to get everybody kind of talking on the same terms and realize, look, we have a common goal here. <laughs> it's business business risk management. We're nobody's enemies, but it's 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 sometimes a challenge. Exactly. So one of the things I've, I've noticed is you, you've you know, which I always like to see, as uh, is, is people kind of contributing and giving back to the industry in some form or another. And I noticed you've, you've been involved with the Cyber Auxiliary for the United States Marines Corps. Can, can you talk about that a little bit, about some of the things you've done within that capacity? Uh, I can talk very briefly about that uh, at, at, a, at a high level. Tell um, me the IPs of all the... <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the NDA assigned with the government sure. prevents pretty much any conversation, but um, at a very high level, the Marine Corps is looking to advance their their capabilities when it comes to cyber. The you know the, the fifth domain uh, in kind of empowering the warfighter to achieve dominance in that domain. And so, one of the things that they're doing is they're scaling up and they're training um, the Marines um, to be better operators. And so, you know, in my role, I'm helping them with that, uh, and that's really uh, all I can say about it. Sure. Um, but with that too, I mean, you've other done, you've done, <laughs> if I can get my words out, you've done other types of volunteer work or, or at least contributed back to with, um, you know, things like at Ithaca college kind of maybe talk about some of the, the work that you're doing with them. Yeah. At Ithaca and, and before that Rutgers, uh, in terms of the cybersecurity advisory program, um, it really, that, that those programs were created to empower the new leaders in security. Um, you know, you and I are, are kind of the dinosaurs of the industry. You know, we've been in it for 15, 20 plus years. Um, but we, you know, the, the truth of the matter is we don't have enough people in this career field. Um, and when I say that, I really mean we don't have enough skilled people and knowledgeable people in this career field. We definitely have a ton of people that have been kind of riding the bandwagon lately, jumping on you know the, the turnip truck, trying to become a cybersecurity professional. And this may be a little bit uh, controversial, what I'm going to say, but um, my, under, my, my feeling is we don't have enough skilled people because everyone is kind of chasing the money because this field is very hot and in demand and not putting the time in to truly understand security. And so 
my really my goal was to uh, kind of extend myself in any way, shape, or form to provide mentorship to the the kind of the, the new leaders at these universities, whether they're business people trying to get into cybersecurity or at least understand it. So when they're faced with the hard decisions or with the, the kind of the ambassadorship of working with different business units, they can really um, make the right decisions and they understand what they're talking about. Because um, right now, you know, I'm a very doom and gloom type of person, but, you know, having worked with many, many organizations in the past, I think it's a severely lacking skill. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's some of the soft skills and just communication skills, human skills that go along with it. I mean, I feel like I can, I can teach people a lot of tech. I can't teach somebody how to be a human if they don't kind of have that part of their DNA. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, with that too, one of the challenges I've certainly seen is um, we've been historically kind of disenfranchised, whether it be, you know, people of color, gender, you know, things that make us maybe not as an accepting type of community. Have you, have you start have you seen that as a historical problem and have you seen it started to change? Yeah. I mean, from what I've seen in the industry, it's, I mean, it's it probably not even applies to our industry just in general. I, I think it's been an issue. Um, I have seen, you know, tech, the technology industry has kind of embraced that uh, very very much so lately, in fact, in terms of diversity. And I know our own organization is has uh, several diversity initiatives in play as well. But um, I, I love seeing, um, you know, diverse people when it comes to getting into the career field, getting into cybersecurity, and really, you know, getting the opportunities that they may not otherwise have. Because, you know, I growing up and getting into the industry, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it really was almost, you know, the, the typical type of you and me in terms of who was in those roles. And now I think that that is starting to, to expand. So it's good to see. Yeah, it definitely is. And I, I can't see any other way to kind of not only close the skill shortage, but uh, the, the staffing shortage, uh, there's just not, not enough people. And if you're excluding a certain group of people, it's going to make it a lot more challenging as a hiring practice. Yeah, and to, just to draw a bridge to, to red teaming, for example, um, the best thing that you can do um, in terms of building out a red team is to have people from a diverse uh, background, diverse perspectives. Because you know, if you have a, a red team that doesn't have that diversity and sees things similarly, you're going to miss a lot of things. And so... Um, I'm highly, I guess, encouraged by what I'm seeing because I think it's just going to be better for the industry as a whole. Definitely. You know, with with that and, and kind of as you look to maybe hire people, mentor people, are there certain things that you 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 look for? You know, uh, you know one of the things I, I get probably three times a day on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to answer. You know, what, what are the types of things as I'm entering the field that a hiring manager would look for? So what are some of those characteristics that you that you kind of try to key on key in on? Yeah, I also get those uh, questions basically on a daily basis myself. And, you know, the, the first thing that I ask people is like, what is your end goal? What are you trying to achieve? And how bad do you want it? You know, nothing worth it in this life is ever given, in my opinion, but earning something and trying and extending yourself um, and failing at times is going to make you a better person. So understanding, you know, the mental fortitude and the desire to push through, whether it's studying late at night, building a lab, you know, trying to understand the security or looking into applied cryptography and, and you know, quantum 
quantum computing and understanding, you know, qubits and stuff. A lot of people, when they start to look at those things, they're like, they just kind of push themselves away from the table, I would say, and, and, and want to want to choose the easy route. And I'm really looking for the person who's going to come after me and keep asking me questions or being like, Hey, I know you're busy, but can you spare an hour, you know, once a month to just um, walk through the questions that I may have and help me understand people like that are the people that are going to be wildly successful when they, you know, really get their feet and start moving forward in their career. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an underrated thing. It's it's just the passion. Um, you you need to you need to. And as Chris Pogue said in the I think the very first podcast it was almost like you know you had to be a chihuahua on a pork chop. Uh, <laughs> you know you just got to jump in on it and really stay on it. And one of the things I've noticed too is the constant change. Um, you know, folks almost get like, oh, well, I learned something and I, I'm kind of I'm good now. I'm like, yeah, no, you're never good. As soon as you get comfortable, you're 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 might be missing something. And I had to do that with my cloud journey. Learn cloud security and. Again, going back to stuff I knew from NT back in the 90s might not apply now. And all of a sudden, I'm having to relearn things and that you're constantly having to almost reinvent some of your skill base and knowledge base. Yeah, that's exactly right. And my mantra has been for forever, you know, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable to grow as a person and to grow new skills and to be a better person. And so as long as you're extending yourself and you're learning new things and doing new things, you're going to over time become better no matter what you're doing, not just cybersecurity. Exactly. Well, Danny, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can folks find you online? Yeah. I mean, you can go to, to bishopfox.com uh, to, to find our company. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, and you can also find me on Twitter. If you search for the username exploitation, the I's and O's are ones and zeros. Very elite. I'll be definitely uh, be sure to put all, all that in the show notes. And I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.